Harvard Divinity School. Judeo-Pessimism, Anti-Semitism, History, and Critical Race Theory, April 3rd, 2023. Uh, welcome to the center. My name is Charles Stang. I have the privilege of serving as the director here at the CSWR. We're very happy to be hosting the center's annual list lecture in Jewish studies in person again. This year, it's the first time we've been able to do so since the pandemic. Recent list lecturers have included Elliot Wolfson, Guy Strumsa, Vivian Liska, and Sarah Hammerschlag. And we're honored this evening to add Professor Shaul Magid to that distinguished list of lists. Shaul, that's a joke. Thank you for laughing. Um, <laughs> that is the only joke I will tell, and it's a terrible one. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, actually, you know, it's amazing. I haven't tried that one before. It just came to me this year. Probably be the last one. Okay. Shoa Magid is professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College. He's a senior fellow here at the CSWR and the Kogod. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Wow. Kogod. Thank you. Senior research fellow in the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America. His Dartmouth website describes his areas of interest as Jewish thought, Kabbalah, Hasidism, and American Jewish culture. But to be honest, after reviewing his list of publications, that seems, uh, it, it doesn't feel as if that description does justice to his range of interests. So his most recent books include The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance, that just is uh, 2023, Mir Kahane, Kahana, right? Am I saying that right? Okay. The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, 2021. The Bible, the Talmud, and the New Testament, Elijah Zvi Soloveitchik's commentary on the New Testament, that's 2019. And also in 2019, Piety and Rebellion, Essays in Hasidism. So in addition, uh, Professor Magid is also inducing a lot of self-loathing in me right now due to the uh, uh, frequency of his publication. So thank you for that. Very grateful. Um, but the good news for us here at HDS is that Professor McGee next year, 2023-24, will be the visiting professor of modern Jewish studies. We're delighted to have him here next year. That's an area in which the school sorely needs more courses. So just a few brief words about Professor McGee's lecture this evening entitled Judeo-Pessimism, Anti-Semitism, History, and Critical Race Theory. He writes, black studies and critical race theory constitute some of the most theoretically sophisticated conversations in the humanities today on issues of individual and collective identities. The results have not yet been brought to bear on Jewish studies in general or research on anti-Semitism in particular. This talk makes the case that anti-Semitism can be better theorized through engagement with theories of anti-blackness, particularly. It focuses, it focuses on how Jews write about anti-Semitism, how it's perceived in contemporary America, and how this discussion relates to race and Jewish identity. So Professor Magid, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to deliver this year's List Lecture. We're honored to host you. This podium is yours. Thank you, Charlie, for that introduction, and thank you also um, to Dean Hempton for um, offering me next year to 
be a visiting professor at the Div School and to all of you who came out tonight. So uh, this is, this is a, a project that um, is somewhat new, meaning it's about three or four years old. And so I really, not really sure it's ready for prime time, but here goes. This is really kind of the first time that I've really spoken publicly about it in an academic context. When, Jews when did Jews begin to think of anti-Semitism as a problem? The term anti-Semitism was coined in the mid-19th century by Moritz Steinschneider and popularized soon after by Wilhelm Maher in 1881. Since then, however, Jewish discussions about anti-Semitism tend to presume it extends back to the more distant past, whether as Jew hatred or anti-Judaism or already anti-Semitism. And then in some sense, it was already a problem before the 19th century and perhaps even as long as there have been Jews. If we define anti-Semitism as the hatred of the Jew qua Jew, ancient antecedents may not quite fit. But by the time we get to the Middle Ages, certainly in Christendom, Jews are certainly hated distinctly as Jews. Perhaps the term Judenhass is most apt. But it is not clear that Jews saw that as a problem that could be solved in any social sense. Most seem to have viewed that hatred either as part of the exilic punishment or as an eternal truth about non-Jews more generally, as suggested by the rabbinic dictum rendering of Esau hates Jacob, which I'll speak about in a moment. In the fantastical Three Oaths pericope in Talmud Sanhedrin of 111a, God says to Israel, I quote, I promise not to enable the nations to persecute you too much. Persecution seems to be taken as a covenantal inevitability, maybe even necessity, to purify the collective Jewish soul in preparation for the future redemption. By this logic, non-Jewish hatred is simply an inevitable part of Jewish history. What celebrated Jewish historian Salo Baron called its lachrymosity. A different approach emerges among Jews during the modern era of emancipation, as many Jews wanted to be part of European societies in which they lived. Anti-Semitism emerges as a concept precisely when Jews begin to see the hatred of the Jew qua Jew as a problem that needed to be solved and could be solved. That is something that requires social and political intervention for emancipation to be successful. And yet the older theological approach remains largely within traditional Jewish communities, but not only. My suggestion here, in fact, is that the rabbinic idea that hatred of the Jew defines the Gentile, always and everywhere, still informs much of the Jewish discussion of anti-Semitism to this day. Even in discussions that seem to be historical on how best to resolve or eradicate it. My question here, though, is not about the origins of anti-Semitism. There are plenty of books that are written about that. Rather, I'm more interested in how Jews, especially today, write about anti-Semitism in places, its place in the Jewish popular imagination and its uses by Jews in our contemporary world. 
Part of what I want to investigate is the tension in how anti-Semitism is simultaneously viewed as a historical phenomenon, best understood contextually, and as an ahistorical, if not ontological principle, which is even on some theological readings, as we will see, not only inevitable, but even necessary. I first begin to think through I first began to think through these questions from uh, when I was doing research for my recent book on Mayor Kahana. Kahana was a radical militant rabbi, founder of the Jewish Defense League in 1968, and founder of the Israeli political party Kach in 1971. Um, and he was deemed to be a racist by the Israeli parliament and removed from office in 1976. Um, 1986, I'm sorry. But in his 1971 breakout book, Never Again, Kahana stresses that the most startling thing about the Holocaust was that Jews were surprised by it. For him, the Holocaust was distinctive only in its expanse, not in its program and not in its goal. Anti-Semitism, as he saw it, is simply a part of what he called the DNA of the Gentile. Their hatreds of the Jews needs no explanation and can find no solution. It is more like a natural law. He writes as follows. I only know that those who say that the Holocaust cannot happen again are blind, are fools or blind or both. I only know that the haters look upon the Jew as the enemy. I only know that the Jew is first to go into any Holocaust and that the economic envy and religious hatred and irrationality of Jew baiting are here. And above all, let us understand that people in the best of times do not like Jews and that people in America today, this is written in 1970, do not like Jews. It is not a thing that is logical, and one who cannot understand it had better search his own psychological condition. For ages, we have sought to diagnose the condition in the hope of finding a cure, and we have failed. In the end, we are left with the resigned word of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, it is natural law, that Esau, that Esau hates Jacob. By this logic, the historians who attempt to understand the Holocaust have failed because anti-Semitism for Kahan is not historical or structural. It is woven into the very fabric of human civilization. It is definitive of the Gentile and thus will always be part of any non-Jewish world in which Jews choose to live. For Kahana, anti-Semitism can never be eradicated only managed, and thus he offers a way to counter its violence through the deterrent of Jewish militancy. It was when trying to understand Kahana that I first coined the term Judeo-pessimism, an analogy to the position of Afro-pessimism, current in black studies and critical race theory. Here I want to develop this a little bit further, suggesting that the conversation with black studies can offer a productive way toward a more critical approach to anti-Semitism and the Jewish discourse about it. Why black studies? Or as some prefer, black study? My aim here is not to juxtapose two constructs of navigating difference simply because it hasn't been done before, or to suggest that all forms of hatred are the same. Rather, I have found in black studies some of the most sophisticated theoretical thinking about difference in marginality, 
history and ontology, inclusion and exclusion, servitude and freedom. Even the most celebrated treatments of anti-Semitism have tended to be sorely under-theorized. By contrast, recent work in black studies has been marked by serious considerations of the consequences of the failure to theorize anti-blackness and thus to misunderstand the nature of whiteness that is committed to keep blacks on the margins of society as otherly human or not human at all. Not because of racism in the sense we conventionally understand it or because of bias or prejudice, but because anti-blackness in particular is constitutive of human civilization as such. That's the argument. Showing the failure of liberal ideas of tolerance and representation to diffuse anti-blackness, such thinking thus moves beyond the conventional solutions found in civil rights or even in black nationalism. Decoupling theory from the search for solutions, some scholars in black studies and critical race theory more generally have embarked on a theoretical project of discovering anti-blackness as a key to understanding difference as categorical, in some cases even ontological, rather than simply historical or circumstantial. And perhaps most importantly, they have done so in ways that resist the hegemonic white gaze. At first sight, Jewish reflection on anti-Semitism might seem quite different. Both scholarly and popular works on the topic, for instance, tend to be framed as historical surveys oriented toward present-day solutions, or at least the possibility of such solutions. Part of what I learned from writing my book about Kahana is that his views are more widespread than they might seem. Today, Kahana's position is summarily rejected in the polite company of Jews who live in the post-emancipation belief that Jews can successfully integrate into non-Jewish societies. In general, American Jews reject Kahana's militancy as illiberal, if not immoral. If anti-Semitism can only be managed and can never be resolved, the project of modernity will fail the Jews. Kahana said precisely this, but most Jews today in America would not agree. But the current discussion of anti-Semitism both claims to say that both, both claims to say this and also not to say this. Anti-Semitism is treated as historical but also implied to be inevitable or even eternal. The term Hannah Arendt evokes and then rejects in her origins of totalitarian, totalitarianism all without explaining how both can be true at the same time. And this fissure is most ubiquitous in popular books written on the topic, largely by Jews for Jews. To cite a few recent examples, Dara Horn's People Like Dead Jews, Deborah Lipstadt's Anti-Semitism Here and Now, Barry Weiss's How to Fight Anti-Semitism, and David Badiel's Jews Don't Count. Each in different ways seems to address historical context while implying or certainly gesturing toward the eternalist argument that remains unsaid. This is even more the case with more scholarly works such as Robert Wistrich's A Lethal Obsession, Anti-Semitism from Antiquity to the Global Jihad. On the need for the eternalist claim, Hannah Arendt provocatively said as follows. Jewish concerned with the survival of their people would, in a curious, desperate misinterpretation, 
hit on the consoling idea that anti-Semitism, after all, might be an excellent means for keeping people together. So that the assumption of eternal anti-Semitism would even imply an eternal guarantee of Jewish existence. She says this in the beginning of Origins of Totalitarianism. My claim is that through the lens of Afro-pessimism, in particular, we can expose an untheorized fissure in the contemporary Jewish discussion of anti-Semitism. Again, my concern is not to understand anti-Semitism itself, but first to understand the nature of the Jewish discourse about it and the cultural work that it does for Jews today. My claim is not that anti-Semitism and anti-blackness are parallel. Rather, I suggest that the critical study of anti-blackness enables us to grapple with the unspoken tension in contemporary Jewish discussions of anti-Semitism that treat it as simultaneously historically contingent and an ahistorical inevitable phenomenon. Or in other words, what makes them more like Kahana than they would like to admit. Reading Kahana as a Jewish theorist of anti-Semitism, and I would, I would suggest a quintessential Judeo-pessimist, we are first taken back to those rabbinic teachings that most shaped the views in the Middle Ages. As I have noted, this is a Jewish view of the non-Jewish hatred of the Jews that does not view it as a problem in search of a this-worldly solution, certainly not the way moderns do, but as a matter of covenantal consequence. Of course, rabbinic teaching itself is not univocal on this or, or, or any, uh, on this or any matter, but two examples were especially influential. First is a perennialist understanding of anti-Semitism as coterminous with divine election. In some rabbinic traditions, the fact that the Gentile world holds animus toward the Jew is taken as a sign of divine favor even as a condition of divine election. We find this most overtly in st and startlingly in an early medieval midrash called Psikta Zutarta on Exodus chapter 3, playing on the etymological similitude between three words, sneh, Hebrew for bush, as in the burning bush, Sinai, as in Mount Sinai, and the word sinah, the Hebrew term for hatred. The Midrash comments on God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. Why in the bush, the Midrash asks? Because Israel will be ensnared in the thorns of servitude in the future. But why sneh? Because in the future, Israel will, be, will receive the Torah at Sinai, the connection between sneh and Sinai. This is also the language of hatred, sinah that the hatred of the Gentile, the Midrash uses the term idolater, but it really is referring to the Gentile, will descend upon Israel because of Sinai. Significantly, the medieval commentator Rashi in a gloss on a related passage in Talmud Shabbat 89a suggests that the hatred towards the Jews is the result of the Gentiles not receiving the Torah. Other medieval thinkers suggest that this gestures towards Gentile hatred of the Jews as a result of Jews sinning in the future. In any event, the Midrash suggests that hatred of the Jews qua Jew, what we now call anti-Semitism, emerged with the moment of divine election at Sinai. 
In fact, by this logic, anti-Semitism confirms Israel's election. Hatred of the non-elect being the inevitable consequence of election, a point that Spinoza made in a slightly different, more psychological register. Spinoza posited that claims of election will naturally evoke enmity. The Midrash in Psikta Zutarta offers a more theological reading, claiming that such enmity is produced by the very fact of Sinai. A second example is the maxim, Esau hates Jacob, cited by Kahana, which I suggest is especially important for understanding the covert ontology of anti-Semitism that survives the advent of modernity. In traditional Jewish circles, the phrase Esau hates Jacob is often deployed as a theological maxim to define anti-Semitism. The phrase itself is not biblical, but comes from an early Midrashic text, Sifri to the Book of Numbers. The context is a comment on Genesis 33:4, reading from the text. Esau ran to meet Jacob. He embraced him, falling on his neck. He kissed him, and they wept. That's the verse. The Midrash comments as follows. The verse has an unusual series of dots above the word, and he kissed him. And this puncta extraordinaria prompts questioning of whether Esau's kiss was sincere. Rabbinic sage Shimon Bar Yochai is credited with the response that it is a well-known halacha, halacha he biyadua, and there are various manuscript variants on that, that language, which are actually quite important. Anyway, it is a well-known halacha that Esau hates Jacob. Nevertheless, at that instance, Esau became merciful and kissed him sincerely. In subsequent Jewish thinking, Esau hates Jacob was treated as a theological maxim, including into modernity. For example, one of the leading halakhic authorities, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in the 20th century, notes in a responsum, and I quote, why is the word halakha, law, relevant here in this midrash? It is because just as halakha never changes, so also Esau's hatred of Jacob never changes. More recently, a contemporary Orthodox rabbi, Emanuel Feldman, pushes the point even further, and this is his language. It is a universal law. Esau hates Jacob. This is one halakha that Esau maintains religiously. Especially in Feldman's interpretation of halakha's universal law, this dictum comes close to an ontological claim about anti-Semitism as constituent of the Gentile. But was this always the case? In a 1967 essay, Esau on Symbol in Early Medieval Thought, Gershon Cohn shows how Esau, or Edom, while it may have simply meant Rome in the rabbinic iteration, eventually comes to represent medieval Christendom, which is still an imperial rather than theological claim, but one now tied to Christianity as Israel's main adversary. But when did Esau become a symbol for all Gentiles, such that the claim of hatred could be taken beyond any specific religious, historical, political, or territorial context as a universal law about the non-Jew? In Malachi HaKohen's sweeping 2019 study, Esau and Jacob, Jewish and European history between nation and empire, 
He argues that it is not until the late 19th century in Yiddish and nationalist Jewish literature when Esau solidifies as the Goy, the non-Jew, the undifferentiated non-Jew. So Cohen writes as follows. Esau returned as a major literary topos in Jewish national literature. He cast divergent figures in their Yiddish works, Russian and Polish acculturated Jewish writers, adopted popular conceptions of Esau from the rabbinic idiom, and turned them into ethnic ones. Esau emerged as the goy, the non-Jew, the quintessential other. Right, a Zionist writer, Chaim Nachman Bialek, proved the equivalent in Hebrew, as did other authors. At first sight, the modern Jewish discussion of anti-Semitism might seem to mark a departure from these views. It tends, for instance, to discuss its history and context rather than outlining ahistorical theological truths. To focus on history is to assume that non-Jews are different from one another, and mostly tolerant in modern liberal societies in particular, such that any sort of bias or hatred is an aberration or exception in need of explanation and contextualization. But I suggest here that we find these same ahistorical ideas underlying much contemporary Jewish writing about anti-Semitism. Such an admission is rarely voiced as it does not adhere to modern sensibilities of Jewish identity and difference. Yet much of the medieval view still remains surreptitiously operative even as modern Jews begin to articulate anti-Semitism as a problem that can be and should be solved. So it seems to me from my per perch that Jews today are mostly confused about anti-Semitism. In fact, it's arguably this confusion that generates endless writing about it. The confusion is found, founded on the following assumption. Historically, anti-Semitism historically, anti-Semitism seems to be everywhere and always, in places where Jews live and in places where they don't live, in places where they're excluded from society and in places where they are integrated into society. Many Jewish thinkers explore this in painful detail, the instances, trends, and disastrous impact of anti-Semitism throughout history. But the problem of the trans-historical, the everywhere and always, veiled in the historical is rarely analyzed or theorized. On the one hand, this is understandable. Such claims don't cohere with the modern Jewish goals of, of integration. And historians in general are mostly uncomfortable with trans-historical decontextualized claims. On the other hand, what many of these studies show is that anti-Semitism seems to resist any single explanation. Historians have shown how Jews exercising difference sometimes produce anti-Semitism, but so do Jews engaged in assimilation, Jews being nationalists and Jews being universalists, Jews being capitalists and Jews being communists. All of these seem to have sparked, in some cases, anti-Semitism. Are these all the same? And if so, from a historical perspective, what does that mean for determining the why of anti-Semitism? I reconsider this historical study of anti-Semitism in conversation with trans-historical understandings of anti-blackness in critical race theory, looking in particular to Afro-pessimist theorists who see whiteness and blackness in political ontological terms. On this, 
Jared Sexton notes that anti-Semitism, and I quote, notes that Afro-pessimism, and I quote, moves from the empirical to the structural, or more precisely from the exper exper experiential to the political ontological, especially insofar as the question of differential racialization or complexity of racial hierarchy makes recourse to a comparative history and social science. Now, I'm not advocating or rejecting these claims with respect to race. What I'm suggesting is that these theories offer a useful point of conversation, a potentially productive juxtaposition with Jewish approaches to anti-Semitism. Afro-pessimism in particular takes on the problem of the transhistorical head-on, offering one model of how to theorize outside of history and theology about hatred which transcends specific times and places and which can even structure entire identities and cultures. As I stated at the outset, my concern here is not with what anti-Semitism is, but rather how it's perceived and presented by Jews today. And part of my suggestion is that the discussion both by Jews and within Jewish studies is distinct, for instance, from the parallel Christian discussion, which is guided by other concerns. For the Jewish discussion, I suggest that one can distinguish three approaches, the historical, the structural, and the ontological. The first understands instances of anti-Semitism as products of historical circumstances that produce attitudes of animus or hatred towards Jews or cultivate notions of Jewish otherness. The second claims that these antagonisms run deeper than historical circumstances and are embedded in the very structure of how a society is constructed, thus accounting for their recurrent character. Historical instantiations thus reflect a structural flaw in society, sometimes driven by religion, sometimes by culture, and sometimes by racialization. The third, the ontological, is the most ambiguous, but also the most devastating. It suggests that there is something in the very nature of social reality that produces such hatred. This can sometimes be explained metaphysically, but more often in regard to anti-Semitism, it is viewed theologically. What is striking in my view is the degree to which the third often lurks beneath the first two. One important exception is the Jewish historian David Engel, who suggested in his essay, Away from a Definition of Antisemitism, that the study of antisemitism as a historical phenomenon must remain delimited to its terminological genesis in 19th century Germany in response to the resistance some German intellectuals had to Jewish emancipation. Hannah Arendt makes a similar argument in her essay, Antisemitism from the 1930s, but notwithstanding these interventions, and there are a number of other ones, it remains common to conflate them all into a singular anti-Semitism, erasing these distinctions that would make particular examples contingent on specific circumstances or cultural contexts. Engel posits the problem as a lack of historical rigor. My question is, what if the ahistorical erasure of such distinctions is not haphazard, but rather calculated or at least meaningful. So Afro-pessimism. In trying to explore this question, I found it useful to look at Afro-pessimism theorists, such as Frank Wilderson III, who are quite explicit in embracing claims about ahistorical patterns or what he calls political ontology. 
Wilderson, for instance, posits the civilizational position of anti-blackness or anti-black solidarity that permeates the construction of whiteness as a purportedly neutral state of being human. He claims, his claim is on a level of political ontology in this sense, since as George Weddington puts it, Afro-pessimism describes blackness not as solely a question of difference, but a political positionality that exists outside of, but is also essential to, the construction of humanity. This is not to say that whites are by definition anti-black. It is to rather to claim that whiteness is at least in part produced by anti-blackness. And this structural antagonism is constitutive of civilization, at least in its modern Western expressions, and especially in the United States. I want to argue below that much of the Jewish discussion of anti-Semitism is marked by parallel assumptions that are pervasive but remain largely unspoken. The dominant public discourse about anti-blackness in the United States was long dominated by white liberal models of approaching all forms of minority inequity as easily surmountable barriers to inevitable progress thus focusing on solutions through rights, access, and representation. But more than half a century after the Civil Rights Movement, it is clear that a focus on white tolerance and black representation has not solved inequity. Afro-pessimists are among the most prominent thinkers to focus on, the, on, on black theorizing of blackness and anti-blackness. And as Jared Sexton suggests, Afro-pessimism is thus a claim, not only a claim, but also a positionality. That is, it is more than seeing the world from a position that does not assume that whiteness speaks neutrally or universally to define what is the human. But asserting white supremacy doesn't quite get to the claim of Afro-pessimism or Afro-pessimists like Wilderson who goes beyond historical discussions about slavery as well as structural claims about economics and incarceration in American society. By this measure, anti-blackness is viewed as categorically distinct from other forms of racism and bias, but also uniquely constitutive. Sexton here riffing on Du Bois writes, the color line, as it were, operates here as the division of the world into regions of blackness and non-blackness or slavery constructed to forms of freedom, including the possessive investment in whiteness, rather than whiteness and non-whiteness. Wilderson echoes this sentiment when he says that the structure of the world's semantic field is, quote, sutured by anti-black solidarity, end quote. And in this sense, and it is in this sense that their claims become explicitly ontological. So, for example, Yui Copeland recently put it, Afro-pessimism at once reveals and reckons with the modern world, a fundamental, world's fundamentally anti-black antagonism, which in political ontological terms structurally positions the black as the slave, the void, the site of non-capacity that makes possible whiteness relationality, in a word, the world itself. The claim is minimally a structural one about the anti-blackness of America that cannot be remedied through legislation, but maximally it moves to the realm of the ahistorical. Wilderson offers a particularly stark and dark articulation of Afro-pessimism as founded on, quote, a comprehensive 
an iconoclastic claim that blackness is coterminous with slaveness. Blackness is social death, which is to say there was never a prior moment of plenitude, never equilibrium, never a moment of social life, end quote. By his reading, and this is quoting him again, blackness and slaveness are inextricably bound in such a way Whereas slaveness cannot be separated from blackness, blackness cannot exist other than slaveness. This is something the more popular things that are known in his name. His point is that Afro-pessimism is founded on an ontological claim of anti-blackness, which he distinguishes from racism, upon which human civilization and not just America is founded. There are humans and there are blacks. Blacks are not human subjects, but are instead structurally inert props implement for the execution of white and non-black fantasies and sadomasochistic pleasures. That's Wilderson. He kind of goes too, a little bit too far. Anyway, for Wilderson, anti-blackness is not a social dynamic, but a requisite component of social life. And slavery is not a historical phenomenon, but a relational dynamic. It defines blackness. It is not that blacks were slaves. It is that they will always be slaves because that is their civilizational role. They are the negative opposite of the human without which the human could not exist as it does. Blackness is the dehumanized human which gives the human its positive status. Here, Sylvia Winter puts it this way. While the black man must experience himself as the defect of the white man, as must the black woman vis-a-vis -vis the white woman, Neither the white man or woman can experience her himself or herself in relation to the black man, black woman, in any way but as that fullness of genericity of being human, yet the, a genericity that must be verified by the clear evidence of the latter's lack of fullness, of this genericity. Much of this political ontology is born from a specific reading of post-colonial theorist Franz Fanon. While Afro-pessimism generally does not compare anti-blackness to anti-Semitism, Fanon often uses anti-Semitism in a comparative frame. Comparing Auschwitz to the Middle Passage, we read as follows. This, was, this is Fanon cited by Wilderson, who kind of changes it a little bit. Jews went into Auschwitz and came out as Jews. Africans went into ships and came out as blacks. The former is a human holocaust. The latter is a human at a metaphysical holocaust. This is why it makes little sense to an attempt at an analogy. The Jews have the dead, the Muslim, among them. The dead have the blacks among them. The metaphysical nature of the fate of many varieties of Africans who entered the Middle Passage and all came out as black is thus viewed by Fanon as categorically different than the genocide of the Jews in Jatsi, Germany. Whatever one makes of Fanon's claim and Wilderson's use of that claim, and it is certainly the case that the Jew who emerges from Auschwitz is not at all the same Jew who entered into its gates, for Fanon it is arguably the metaphysical component of his point that inspires the shift from historical and structural claims about slavery to the ontological claims of Afro-pessimism. What does any of this have to do with anti-Semitism? In short, 
I think everything. The questions Wilderson, Sexton, Hartman, and Winters, among others, wrestle with about anti-blackness are not really much different than the questions Jews wrestle with in terms of anti-Semitism. What is different is that these theorists have been much more willing to think outside of or even against the historicity of specific examples of racism to understand the persistence and power of the phenomenon. Where does it come from? When and where did it, does it exist? What, if anything, could be done about it? To my mind, scholarship of an anti-Semitism might also have something to learn from scholarship on anti-blackness, anti not least in focusing less on origins and solutions and more on how such phenomena function on social or even civilizational levels. Part of what is powerful about Wilderson's intervention, for instance, is that he proposes a thought experiment that is not solutions-based or otherwise framed in terms of a white gaze that sees racism as anomalous. His ideas have sparked much debate and disagreement within the community of scholars of black theory and critical race theory, black studies and critical race theory, and they should continue to do so. But it is precisely what has been valuable about them. What is pervasive but typically left unspoken in much Jewish discussion of anti-Semitism might similarly be better honed if stated explicitly and openly uh, and opened up to debate. Many Jews, at least according to my reading, seem to be locked into a dilemma regarding the genealogy of anti-Semitism. On the one hand, many Jews seem bound to view it or present it historically or circumstantially with understandable resistance to any solutions that sound ahistorical, theological, or even ontological. On the other hand, they habitually describe examples of hatred and hostility towards Jews, large or small, as instantiations of an anti-Semitism that everyone knows is everywhere and always. This seemingly incongruity can even be seen in historical studies. Many present anti-Semitism from different contexts as if different sorts of examples are all the same phenomena. Some scholars, such as Amos Goldberg and Scott Uri, who happens to be sitting here tonight this afternoon, have openly challenged the coherence of using anti-Semitism as an umbrella term to include all kinds of animus towards Jews. Since this remains largely unstated, however, scholarship on anti-Semitism has both ignored the ontological assumptions within much of the historical research and neglected to engage the political ontological theorizing outside of historical research. Beyond the scope of this analysis, to invoke Arendt again, what do Jews get from talking about anti-Semitism? What pleasure or comfort is taken in the lachrymose depiction of their own history? And are these studies in some way feeding some of a sense of authentic Jewishness as linked to victimization, a sense that is hard to abandon, even in the contemporary context where Jewishness is no less linked to political sovereignty as in Israel, or to successful integration into non-Jewish cultures as in America? One example of what a more explicit discussion might look like is Kahana's reflexive comment that I cited at the outset. But I want to present one more modern example of openly framing anti-Semitism ahistorically or something that comes close to the ontological but even more strikingly inevitable or necessary. This example pushes us even more toward the accounting of a theorizing paradigm that may be productive even if we reject the premise. This example can be found in a short treatise 
by Naftali Tzvi Berlin of Elazhim, who died in 1893, entitled She'ar Yisrael, The Remnant of Israel. Berlin was a leading rabbinic figure in late 19th century Eastern Europe who remains revealed in many traditional circles today. His essay was originally published in 1894. In a second edition of his Rinashel Torah, it was likely written sometime around the 1860s. It's an uncommon essay from the wellsprings of traditional Eastern European Jewry in that it is dedicated to the topic of explaining anti-Semitism. In fact, it is likely the first Hebrew word to use the term anti-Semitism explicitly. While it was surely written before the pogroms of the 1880s, rising animosity towards Jews in Eastern Europe, even in the middle of the 19th century, coupled with the widespread Jewish rejection of the tradition, could have inspired Berlin's interest. While Berlin remains wed to the exegetical theological frame common in his world, I suggest that She'ar Yisrael is a rare example of moving to the realm of the ontological as a way to frame anti-Semitism. The historian Arthur Hertzberg once said, the only thing more dangerous to Jews than anti-Semitism is no anti-Semitism. Hertzberg meant, I assume, that the absence of anti-Semitism opened the door to mass assimilation that he believed was always the occupational hazard of Jews in modernity. Writing in the 19th century, Naftali Tzvi Berlin seems to have taken a different take on the same idea. Not that anti-Semitism prevents assimilation, but that it is a corrective to it. Berlin's essay is found in, in a much earlier principle stated by Saadjigon, who lived in the, uh, in the, in the 10th, cent 9th, 10th century, late 9th, late 9th century, early 10th century, namely that the Jews only exist for the sake of Torah. In other words, there is nothing unique or special about Jews per se, apart from carrying the tradition of divine revelation to the world. That's Sadigon's position. The Jews for him are vessels for Torah, nothing more. Without stating that precept outright, Berlin uses it to explain the enmity of the non-Jew toward the Jew. He never uses the maxim, Esau hates Jacob, in his essay, but he does use it elsewhere in his Torah commentary. Rather, he bases his theory on the acrimonious relationship between Jacob and Laban, but more his father-in-law, but more specifically on a verse from the genealogies in Genesis 6.21. That's a picture of him there. Sons were born to shame, ancestors of all descendants of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth. That's the verse. The Jews are descended from shame through Eber, hence Shemites or Semites, a term that Berlin seems, this is just my interpolation here, a term that Berlin seems to be referring to as it was very much in use in his time, while the Yaphetites were the people of reason, referring, I surmise, to Europeans. The Shemites, or the Jews, are certainly higher than the Yaphetites, but only when they carry the inheritance of Eber through Abraham. That is, only when they carry the tradition of Torah. When they don't, they are less than the Yaphetites, and the Yaphetites will, will understandably be despised by them. The Jews are thus divided into two categories for Berlin. The first are Jews, who, those who live by the tradition of Torah, and the second are Semites, those who abandon Torah. 
Thus Berlin writes, it is debasing for us to be called Semites, for this is to be more lowly than to be identified with Yafet the Great. However, when we are called Israelites or Abrahamites, we are on a higher level than the Yafetites. For Berlin, the only way for Jews to keep themselves higher than the Yafetites is separating themselves from them to protect fidelity to Torah. Responding to the massive assimilation of Jews in his time, Berlin seems to suggest that by abandoning Torah, Jews move from being Israelites or Jews to Semites, who are lower than the Yafetites and who will be understandably hated by the descendants of Yafet. He goes even further by saying that when Jews abandon Torah, they become almost subhuman, describing them as similar to monkeys, kofim, he uses that term. They lose their Israelite form and, to quote a verse from Hosea 8.8, they become among the nations like an unwanted vessel. The nature of this matter, this is, this is now Berlin, the nature of this matter further indicates that when Israel violates its unique form, that is when it abandons its Judaism, it becomes lowly and despised in the eyes of the world. This is a general principle in nature that every higher form that suffers the destruction of that higher form becomes much more lowly than something that does not originally have that particularly higher form. For Berlin, this enmity is not simply part of the natural, is not simply part of the web of natural law in the sense of the rabbinic dictum, Esau hates Jacob. It is anti-Semitism, right? And this is a term that's very new when he was writing. And it has a divine teleology all its own. Anti-Semitism then for him can be viewed as a covenantal corrective. Now it is clear that the unique form of Israel is their being alone and separate from others. It is therefore understood that what happens should be what happens when Israel tries to break out of its aloneness and imitate others, ending in the removal of its religious tradition of Judaism. How does the Holy One return them to their structural purpose? Animosity for Israel is stirred up among the nations. Israel not referring to the country, referring to the people. They are pushed away from their lives and dwellings until inevitably the uniqueness of Israel is recognized and the works of God is established forever. One could say that Berlin's assessment is empirically false. That is, anti-Semitism exists against Torah-observant Jews as well as assimilated Jews. He responds to this with an observation about Jacob and Laban. The Passover Haggadah contains one of the most off-sided cases for the ontology of anti-Semitism. Indeed, in every generation, they rise against to destroy us. However, the, God, the Blessed Holy One saves us from their hands. Berlin focuses on what follows. Go and learn what, uh, what Laban the Aramean attempted to do to our ancestor Jacob. This is basically taken right from the Passover Haggadah. Berlin notes that while the context is that Laban was suspicious of Jacob, his enmity had two dimensions, the second being hostility toward Jacob's faith. What prevents Laban, or anti-Semites in this scenario, from succeeding is the divine protection initiated by the Jews' fidelity to the law. Once that disappears, they become merely Semites, unwanted vessels, to use the locution from Hosea. And the Yaphetites rightly hate them. 
Berlin summarizes as follows. From this we learn that all the nations among whom we live hate the name of Judaism. However, they do not have the opportunity to actualize their enmity until the high providence wishes to punish us and a pretext is found for an attempt to destroy us completely. The story of Laban and Jacob is a lesson to all Jacob's descendants. For Berlin, anti-Semitism thus has two forms. The first is hatred for a lowly people, the Semites, who have abandoned Torah and relinquished their lofty status as Eberites, who are descendants of shame who carry the tradition of Abraham. This hatred, he claims, is understandable and even justified, since Israel becomes, in the words of Hosea, an unwanted vessel. The second is Laban's desire to uproot Israelite faith. In the second instance, Israel is protected by God. Berlin was living at a time when Jews were both abandoning the tradition at the very same time that anti-Semitism was on the rise. He was a leader of the Velazhin Yeshiva, one of the great Torah institutions in modern history, and yet around him, assimilation was rampant. The fear was that the behavior of the Jewish Semites would also impact the lives of the Jewish Eberites. Thus, he calls his essay Remnants of Israel, a phase taken from Isaiah 1020, and in that day the remnant of Israel and the escaped from the house of Jacob shall lean no more on him that beats it, but shall lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. For Berlin, anti-Semitism is simply part of the fabric of human civilization, which is why I think he draws it from the genealogy of the descendants of Eber. While Berlin does not speak openly here in metaphysical, ontological terms, he certainly viewed anti-Semitism in dehistoricized terms, not linked to specific historical circumstances or societal structures, but rather functioning as a fundamental and even necessary part of human civilization, activated in part by Jews becoming Semites by abandoning Torah. The Jew avoids the brunt of anti-Semitism by living under the wings of divine protection. But if they step outside, anti-Semitism will eventually rise to destroy them. Esau hates Jacob is not necessary for Berlin because he places anti-Semitism long before that. The remnant of Israel may be salvaged, but the Semites, in his view, will be justifiably erased. Anti-Semitism purges the Semites who have left Torah, according to Berlin, or alternatively, it wakes them up to return to reside under the wings of divine protection. So this analysis points to some of what I mean when I say Judeo-pessimism, which makes claims about anti-Semitism that are akin to the political ontology of anti-blackness that we find in some Afro-pessimists. Just as Afro-pessimists claim that America is a white supremacist nation, or as Wilderson would have it, that the world as we know it is founded on anti-blackness. Some Jewish thinkers see the non-Jewish world through the lens of anti-Semitism. Hatred of the Jew is treated as definitive of the non-Jew. A question that I think is worth asking is the degree to which Judeo-pessimism also underlies discussions of anti-Semitism more broadly. Are Jewish scholars of anti-Semitism similarly claiming this antipathy to the Jew under guides much as human civilization 
And if so, exactly what would that mean? There's an understandable discomfort for historians or modern Jews generally to make claims of this sort in explicit terms. To argue for an ahistorical persistence of anti-Semitism seems anathema to a people who have invested so much energy normalizing in the world, either through successful integration in America and other parts of the diaspora, or through nationalization through Zionism. The theological analysis of Berlin may seem creative and suggestive, if not outrageous, but hardly a template for how American, for how contemporary Jews now see themselves in the world. Kahana offers a secularized version of Berlin, simply stating that the failure of historians to understand the why of anti-Semitism leaves us with Shimon Bar Yochai's natural law of Esau's enmity for Jacob. And Bayochai's comment, likely initially directed only at the Roman Empire, has become universalized by the expansion of Esau as the goy in modern Jewish literature, so that Jewish nationalism does not in fact place the Jew as a nation among nations, but rather in a binary model of Israel and the nations, or Israel against the nations. In practice, Jewish historians of anti-Semitism tend to describe enmity towards Jews in many historical and societal contexts without particularizing those contexts. Varied expressions of hostility towards Jews and Judaism, from the Christian theological supersessionism to conspiracy theories about Jewish world domination to anti-Zionism are all just simply called anti-Semitism, as if they are all essentially the same. In effect, if not an intent, such scholarship is thus engaging in a theological project that is arguably no less ontological in its claims than the theories of anti-blackness noted above. To imply, even if not stated openly, that anti-Semitism is everywhere and always is not a historical claim. It is a theological or even ontological claim. Even if we leave the reason to mystery and reject Berlin's analysis of anti-Semitism as the natural consequence of assimilation, trans-historical or trans-territorial phenomena all described as one thing, anti-Semitism, is not a historical claim, even if, one, even if one might make that claim using historical methods. This is why Engel's essay, Away from a Definition of Anti-Semitism, is such a welcome and crucial, if not also problematic, uh, and, uh, and, and in need of further examination, an intervention into the conversation, even if one disagrees with it. And interestingly, why it was so critically received in Israel in a recent volume of Tzion, which, which had a Hebrew version of Engel's essay, and then a series of responses, one of them by Susanna Heschel. It is here that I think Afro-pessimism Afro can be of use to scholars of anti-Semitism precisely because it is willing to make its ahistorical claims explicit and thus put them up for debate. Many critical race theorists blanch at Wilderston Sark assessment because it problematizes any solution or makes solutions inadequate. There is no solution to anti-blackness or at least no easy solution and no solution that would leave civil society intact, since it is constitutive of the construction of the human, at least in the modern West. Anti-blackness cannot be undone without also undoing much of we now, what we now consider to be civilization. That's the Afro, that's Wilderson's claim. 
But Berlin and Kahana's assessments and the ways that they have shaped the popular Jewish imagination also reject any solution. Yes, Jews can separate themselves and even establish their own country, which Berlin tacitly supported, and they can live by the dictates of Torah, but that will not erase anti-Semitism as rooted for Berlin in Laban's animus towards Jacob. It only minimizes its potential damage. And one can respond to anti-Semitic violence through violence following Kahana, or live under the auspices of divine protection through fidelity to Torah. But that too will not erase anti-Semitism, only manage it or mitigate it. Anti-Semitism for them is intractable. Kahana at least openly admits that he believes that. While very few, if any, historians of anti-Semitism make such dire predictions, the trans-historical way they often present their historical data seems to me to point in that same direction. The unwillingness to pose an answer to the question of why there is anti-Semitism, especially since it appears to be trans-historical, is taken up by Berlin, and in doing so, he dehistoricizes it and places it into an ontological or theological frame. Anti-Semitism is what happens when Jews become Semites by abandoning Torah. In other words, without Torah, the natural animus of Yaphetites towards Semites becomes manifest. Historians will certainly resist such an explanation, even finding it absurd. But aren't they, in some inchoate way, contributing to it as well? Put otherwise, are many Jews not living in an orbit of Judeo-pessimism without owning its consequences? What does anti-Semitism everywhere and always mean in terms of being a Jew in the 21st century? The study of anti-Semitism as I read it has not yet developed a critical theory of its subject, whereby it can be analyzed in the fullness of itself. In short, perhaps we need to initiate a school of critical Jewish theory. Scholars of anti-Semitism understandably feel uncomfortable with older Jewish theorizing or, or of non-Jewish hatred towards Jews, such as we've just seen in the theological diagnosis of Esau hates Jacob or Berlin's reading of all of Jewish history through relationship between Laban and Jacob. Scholars of anti-Semitism might benefit from a deeper engagement with Afro-pessimists and critical race theorists more generally who are grappling with anti-blackness and theorizing its broader implications for human civilization, not as a cause of racism, but as a way of understanding why we can't seem to get beyond it. Thank you. Scott, yeah.
Right. Right. This, this, is, this is a really good question. It makes a lot of Jews very nervous, um, which is why there's been such push, pushback against critical race theory in general among Jews, wokeness among Jews, right? The, the sense of, of being white, uh, of being, in a certain sense, not only the persecuted ones, but the persecutors, in a sense, moving from one side of the ledger to the other. I, I published a piece in Contending Modernities last year or two years ago called The Price of Non-Whiteness, which is what it would mean what it would mean, what does it mean for Jews to own whiteness and therefore own what whiteness is, even though um, it may have, you know, they, may, may, they may, have, may, may not have been in America during slavery, and that's always, you know, a case that Jews make against reparations, um, but they're beneficiaries of that whiteness, and, and that whiteness, in certain sense, excludes them from certain progressive political models, Black Lives Matter, one example. Zionism also does that. What would it mean to actually own the non-whiteness, right? What would be the price? Because in a certain sense, it seems to me, and again, I'm just really speaking off the top of my head here, where it seems to me that, that many American Jews, in, in, in this case, are caught between wanting the benefits of whiteness and wanting the politics of non-whiteness. And when that doesn't play out for a variety of reasons, they see that as anti-Semitism, right? Because that's always the way it goes, it always go, kind of goes back to that. So the anti-Semitism of the left or the anti-Semitism of woke Black Lives Matter culture and the anti-Semitism of Charlottesville, right? And they see themselves situated in both of those, in both of those cases. I mean, there, there's interesting historical precedent to this when, um, when people went down in the Freedom Summer in 1961 to register black voters in the South, and many of them were Jews, of course, two of them were lynched, um, the Jews in the South were not very happy about that because it really destabilized a very fragile relationship that Southern Jews had with white Southerners. So the argument was is that these liberal Jews are coming down from the North and evoking the ire of the white Southern, white Christian Southerners, and then going back to their places in Cambridge and New York City, and then, the, and then the, the Southern Jews were suffering as a result of that. So I think that you're absolutely right that the question of difference, I think, today is really situated for, the, for American Jews on the question of whiteness, in the way that it isn't in Israel, it's a, I think it's a different dynamic in Israel and the race relations are different, but, but that, again, but again, this is something that I feel is not really being theorized. Nobody's really sitting and doing the work, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, some people, but not enough people are sitting and doing the work of theorizing Jewish whiteness, theorizing um, the relationship of that to the difference in terms of identifying with blackness, and and also engaging in this, in this critical race theory um, uh, experiment. Um, I can't remember his name right now, wrote, wrote a really interesting article that was tucked away in some regional Jewish newspaper about um, uh, if, if Jews reject the concept of wokeness, basically, or if Jews accept the, if Jews reject critical race theory, then they can't teach Jewish history. 
Because Jewish history is the history from the perspective of the victim. So if we want to say that one of the tenets of critical race theory is basically to teach about slavery, the 1619 Project, from the perspective of the victim, if the Jews are basically going to contest that because then they are on the white side of it, then they basically make it impossible to teach Jewish history, which is exactly the way it's, it's all. We don't learn about the expulsion from Spain from Spanish court documents. We learn it from, for the most part, Jewish history is taught the expulsion from Spain from the writings by Jews. Yes, please. Yeah, I, in in um, uh, in her book, in her book, um, anti-Semitism now or whatever, the Deborah Lichtstadt's book. I forgot the title right now. She makes that comment. She, we're hearing now. She makes the comment that philo-Semitism is also anti-Semitism. Now, in a certain way, there's a logic to what she's saying, but but um, I would say I would even go further on some level, um, and this is this is stuff that's, you know, work that's been done by, by Daniel Boyarin and others, there's, there, is some, there is some discernible way that Zionism is also anti-Semitism, right? Because if you look at the early Zionists, the way they depicted the diaspora Jew, sickly, diseased, weak, they're, they're borrowing from all of the anti-Semitic tropes as describing what the Jew is who lives in the diaspora. And the new Jew is the obviously right, the nationalized Jew, the Zionist Jew, is the one who, who kind of undermines all of that. So in a certain sense, the Zionists are basically saying kind of, in some way, that yeah, the anti-Semites were right. In the diaspora, the Jew is a sickly, weak, diseased, parasitic person. And we have to undo that by actually creating some kind of a national entity. So I, I, I think, I, I don't know if I really answered your question, but I think that the, the way in which, um, and here again, I'm not talking about the thing itself, the way in which it's perceived, the way in which anti-Semitism is perceived is that it, any, you know, it, it, it goes to Elad Lapidot's book, Jews, um, Jews Out of the Question, basically says the only way not to be an anti-Semite is not to talk about Jews at all. Right? And then David Badil comes and says, well, if you don't talk about Jews at all, that's also anti-Semitism. Right? Right. Because you're excluding them. Right. But any time you actually talk about, uh, Lapido, Lapidot's you know, argument is any time you talk about the Jew, that already raises the, the question of anti-Semitism, certainly from the perspective of the Jew. So again, these are things that, these are things that exist kind of, you know, in the ether, I think they just really have to be carefully theorized. And it, it, it just seems like Jewish studies scholarship on this question, um, and again, there are some exceptions. I mean, Susanna has really done some real work on this. Be have to begin to kind of theorize the question of transhistorical and historical and, and, and not hide behind history. And that's kind of what, what the contemporary discussion is doing. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, Susanna, yeah. Um, thank you for a really interesting talk, very clear, and I very enjoyed it a lot. And it seems like a really important subject to start to, and if not enough people are theorizing it, it, it really seems like the controversy is really important. I just wanted to just point out, it almost seems like a kind of Jewish joke in my head, that there's like a slippage between the historical and this ahistorical metaphysical in the sense that, you know, you can start out attributing things to particular historical circumstances, but when it keeps happening like over and over again, and it happens here, and it happens there, and it happens here, you start to say to yourself, maybe there's a reason that it's always happening. So one kind of symptom. Right. And I can see that as like a good joke. But anyway, uh, my question though is, um, you know, that you brought up Kahane, is, so does Judeo-pessimism inevitably become a kind of militaristic, violent, uh, anti-other racist kind of incarnation in the way that we're seeing it now on the right in Israel? So does it necessarily have to be that, you know, and I've heard people talk like this, that, you know, everybody's going to hate us for all time, and therefore there's no point in trying to make friends with, with the Arabs and that the only thing that we that's going to protect us is to just be as tough and as, you know, and as violent as everybody else and just, you know, right. So is, is that the, are, the, are there other directions out of this Judeo-pessimism that are yeah. Right. I mean, I think, you know, as as others have said, that um, uh, the weaponization of anti-Semitism is so sometimes results that that anti-Semitism becomes the foreign policy of Israel, and that's kind of what you're saying, right? That that everybody hates us anyway, so we should just we could just do what we want. Is that the natural outcome of this kind of pessimism, or are there other tracks? Right. I don't think I don't think anything necessarily becomes any. I mean, I I don't think anything is inevitable. Certainly, if you take this particular mindset, and especially if it's not openly spoken about, but kind of subterranean, and then you add in the mix of political power and military power, this is that's one iteration. Right, it just becomes purely, um, you know, um, domination, basically, and and I think that you know Vincent Lloyd's recent book on um, destiny, uh, talk, talks about this concept of domination. So yeah, so that that that's certainly what we're seeing. Are there other alternatives? I I, I mean I think there are other alternatives. I, I don't know what they would be. They certainly they certainly. You know, Kahana's militancy is one alternative who is looking to kind of, he's looking for a solution to the problem that has no solution. So basically, it's all about just deterrence and protecting yourself. But again, I think there's so much more theorizing to be done before we get to the place of, well, what do we do about it? And, th and this becomes kind of the pushback with Wilderson, too. I mean, people like Fred Moten and others and, and even Terrence or, you know, you know, we don't we don't want to enter into a, an ideological mindset that doesn't allow us any possibility of um, of not a solution, but a way to live happily, to flourish in that context. 
So I, it, that's way down the line for me, but it's certainly a legitimate point. Susanna. So thanks, it was great. Uh, I guess I want to uh, first distinguish between the historians or make a defense of the historical profession because I think they are far more nuanced when I think of Eleanor Sterling or Harkheim or Adorno and yeah. Israel Yuval, Jeremy Cohen. That's a different approach to anti-Semitism. But what you're talking about in the books that you cited, the popular books, and some of this has to do, and I, I, what I want to ask you is to contextualize a bit, because Afro-pessimism emerges as left-wing. And by the way, there is a theological, religious response from Cornel West and yeah. Andrew Propos and others. But Judeo-pessimism is a right-wing phenomenon. And what really seems to be going on with those books right. that you cited, Baliel, et cetera, is not so much that the Goy hates the Jew, but rather to provide an excuse for Jews to hate other Jews, namely hate left-wing Jews. So it's more of an internal problem. It's the Jew against Jew phenomenon more than the worry about the Goy. In fact, it seems to me that Christians are often uh, treated with greater um, not only respect but love and warmth by the people who write Right. Yeah. 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 That that a couple of really good points. I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I noticed that too. Right. This this Judeo pessimist sentiment is really a sentiment that comes in some sense from the right. I don't know how right. Whereas Judeo Afro pessimism is really actually coming from the other side, and have to figure out like you know how those things actually work with each other. It is true with some of the people you, you, you spoke about, and I'm, I'm thinking not only of the more popular books that I mentioned, but also Robert Wisrich and the influence of that, and David Nirenberg, even although he claims not to be wanting to do that, and even Yehuda Bauer. So I think the camps, there, there are different camps, obviously, right? Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think, I would tell you this way. Um, since I'm really kind of interested here in reception, and how, I, I, don't, I don't think that American Jews are reading Israel Yuval, right? They are reading Robert Wisrich, right? They are reading a very particular iteration of, you know, the anti-Semitism from, what, what was it, from, from Sinai to the global jihad or something like that? What, Antiquity to the Jihad, something like that. And in David Nuremberg's anti-Judaism book, he has a chapter on ancient Egypt, right? Which the publisher kind of forced him to write. But nonetheless, he wrote it and put his name on it. So I think that that it's it's how this how this kind of like translates down into a more popular uh, idiom. And I, I I do think that the very very strong move of some sectors of the American Jewish community, uh, certainly in its support of Israel, but also even to the political right in America, is that they're kind of buying a Judeo-pessimist project without really even knowing what they're buying. And they're buying an idea that anti-Semitism is everywhere and always, right, to some degree. And, you know, you could see this you know, this, is, this has come up a lot in terms of the mention of George Soros in relationship to Alvin Briggs, right? Like, what's really being said there and how that's being heard within that community and what's being kind of cultivated. I, I, again, I think this is in an American context. Badiel's writing from Great Britain, and the European context is very different. I know in Germany things are very different also. And in Israel, they're very different. But the Judeo-pessimism isn't to make Jews feel that non-Jews hate us. It's to make Jews 
hate other Jews for not agreeing politically. Function okay. is different. Wilderson would never want black Americans to hate other black Right. Right. So so you're saying that I hear what you're saying. So you're saying that just as anti Semitism gets weaponized, Judeo pessimism is kind of getting weaponized also. But it's really it's like allowing Jews to hate other Jews because those other Jews are not recognizing that the nations hate us. Right? In some way? Okay. You'll correct me later, I'm sure. Terrence. <laughs> Takes the yeah. So you don't see you don't see Black Lives Matter as a claim of we are human. Is that is that the kind of? I do, but I don't think Wilderson would say this is it's primarily it's, it's false. It's bad faith. Because because white is bad faith because white so see history, right? There's nothing there's nothing analogous to the humanity of black, which is why I use that example. Even the Palestinians like oh I was searched by. Yeah, in, in, in Wilderson's book, right, yes, uh, Samira, right, right, right. So that any effort to try to either convince white or to engage black activity is bad faith because it doesn't lead to anything. It leads to momentary happiness, but it's just changed, it's changed very structurally. What I think is what's interesting with the black feminists, and even the work of this is like, I'm not sure they're using my work in a way which I would, I would necessarily support. And, and Williams is saying, look, we have agency even in the wilderness, which I don't think sets to what's to account for. Right, right. Well, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you say Fred Moten kind of moves in that direction also? I would say with the mystical element, he's, giving, he's actually providing more with that interiority that I don't think is, is present within his, within what you said for sex. Right, 
Right. No, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much I can answer. I really kind of look forward to sitting and having a coffee with you for a few hours to kind of, you know. You know, it's funny when I when I first kind of came upon this, I read Wilderson. That may, may that may that may have been the first thing I should have read. But I, I read Wilderson, and I was really totally taken in by it because I was trying to figure out how to write a chapter on race in Kahana. And I don't know, for some reason, I, got, I kind of like just fell into this, this you know, Wilderson pit. And I, I was having lunch with, uh, with Jay Carter, who's a friend at, at, an a, at an AAR conference. And, he, and I was just like going on Wilderson full on. He's just saying, slow down. <laughs> like, there's this whole critique, right? And, and, and I came to see that one of the things that I think is so, for me, valuable about Wilderson, not really being inside that conversation, is not that he's right, but that he kind of throws down a gauntlet that then requires everybody to come up with alternative ways of seeing, of seeing those kinds of things. Um, and that, that's become the value for him. So it, it, for me, anyway, in terms of Judeo-pessimism, I, I think that... I mean, it's interesting that you brought up this idea of nationalism because, of course, nationalism was an alternative for African Americans at a certain moment in history. And, and not only that, but if you go back to Du Bois and Garvey, they saw Zionism as somehow a model. That was going to be the model that they were going to use to get themselves out of this situation, which had its time and you know, made its contribution, and then, it, and then it kind of petered out for a variety of reasons. So it's kind of... Uh, I think there's more, there's more, there's, there's much more to say in terms of the interchange between those two things that is not really talked about anymore, um, both in terms of nationalism and in terms of this, the, the question of um, landlessness and what that actually means. Yeah, did you have a question? Well, We're out of time. Okay, I'm, I'm good whenever you are. I think we're good. <laughs> Thank you. Sponsor Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.